For the week of January 26, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Week in Review. This week, we talk about the Democrats in the Senate ending the government shutdown without a deal on DACA. And we talk about the Women's March 2.0. And we will also take a look back at the first Women's March, which was... uh, it was only a year ago. It uh, seems like a lot longer, uh, doesn't it? I am your host, yep. Stephen Cox, and I am joined this week by the founder of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Chris Petzold. Hello, Chris. Hi there. And we are very happy to be joined by Jamie Smith. She is a state committee woman for the King County Democratic Party. She was a delegate to the Democratic National Convention. She is also the vice chair of the City of Renton Planning Commission and a member of the Mayor of Renton's Inclusion and Diversity Task Force. Welcome to the show, Jamie. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Something I left off your CV, Jamie, is that you are a certified black belt in a martial arts discipline called Six Sigma which in addition to everything else that I've just listed off is amazing. But first, tell us, what is Six Sigma? Well, actually, it's not martial arts. Oh, okay. Amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so everybody, um, everybody kind of kind of assumes that. But Six Sigma is actually a methodology for process improvement in business. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I really saw awesome. black belt. I assumed. I just assumed I should have done a little bit more research. Well, so yeah, because I when I was reading about it, I saw that that GE uh, CEO, former CEO Jack Welch, was a big mm-hmm. proponent of it, right? Absolutely. And it actually started out in manufacturing. So it's really about um, uh, reducing the amount of defects in the products that you create. And so the term Six Sigma itself refers to the, um, like they say 99.9% defect free, but the Sigma is actually how many nines after that decimal point can you get to? And so Six Sigma is like perfect, 99.9%. Point nine 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 nine. Wow! <laughs> I sound like Herman Cain here. <laughs> but, <laughs> that is a deep cut, Herman Cain. That goes that goes right. back a long way. I know. Uh, yeah. Stab twist, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, so you know, no no manufacturer really gets to six sigma. I think um, NASA is the closest at like five. You know, um, Boeing Boeing makes planes at four sigma. So you know, um, so it's it's pretty it's a pretty strong discipline. But it's about you know making sure that things are safe for people to use and reducing the amount of cost um, uh, incurred by companies by you know making crappy products, which is great. Well, we are going to aim for Six Sigma on uh, today's show. Whether we get there or not is, is something to be seen, I suppose. Uh, but we will start this week with what has been the dominant story, uh, and that is the government shutdown, which was ended by the Democrats on Monday. Uh, so after three days, some 28 Democrats, including Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray, joined Senate Republicans in voting to fund the government through February 8th. This after getting a six-year extension of the Childhood Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, along with a promise to take up the immigration issue uh, and specifically the debate over DACA, provided that the government continues to stay open. This, I should mention, is a promise that was made by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, which... uh, yeah, your, uh, your mileage may vary. Um, anyway, progressives and immigration activists in particular are expressing a lot of anger right now at Democrats and at Chuck Schumer in particular for ending the shutdown. Others on the left are saying that the reality of the situation is that the Democrats have almost no power in D.C. right now and that Schumer is playing a bad hand as strategically as he can. Uh, Jamie, we'll, we'll start with you. Do you think the Democrats should have agreed to reopen the government without a DACA deal? 
Um, I, like most people, you know, the activist in me was absolutely howling with anger when I first heard of, um, of the deal that, that was reached. But upon further reflection, I think it was actually the right thing to do, primarily because I don't think that the Democrats had the upper hand in the messaging, you know, and as mm-hmm. time went on and we would be able, we would, we would continue to, to go through the shutdown, I think it would be, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the tide turn against the Democrats as people start to lose jobs and aren't able to make payments and things like that. And so, um, and also looking at it from the lens of, of diversity and inclusion, you know, it's usually people of color and those of low income who are most impacted by a shutdown, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, having the Democrats, you know, actually get to the point where we can reopen the government and reduce that pain while at the same time extracting what they could from the Republicans, I think was in the end, the smart thing to do. Well, Chris, how do you read it? I mean, do you see it if the if it had gone on for any significant period of time, do you see it having diminishing returns, possibly eating away at the support among the base? How do you read it? I think that's possible, but I think they could have given it longer than three days. I mean, look, uh, shutting down the government is a huge it's a huge thing. It's it's nothing that anyone should take lightly. I mean, there are military families who weren't getting the death benefits from their, uh, you know, service member who had died. And, you know, it it is a heartless, horrible thing. But I think on the DACA um, stance, you know, public sentiment was behind them. 80%, 80-some percent of Americans yeah. support the Dreamers. And millions of people marched over the weekend. And then the very next day, um, the Democrats, quote unquote, caved. I mean, I feel bad um, for saying that, but this isn't a new issue. And I don't understand why um, they they walked away so quickly. It did take a lot of the wind out of people's sails, particularly all of the energy that had come from the Women's March and the Day of Action, which I, I want to talk to uh, both of you about in the second half of the show. And also, I should mention, you know, uh, Jamie, you mentioned basically the messaging uh, that was happening mm-hmm. around all of this and how the Republicans seem to be out ahead of it. It is perplexing to me that, you know, Chris mentioned 80 percent. Uh, and that that number kind of moves around, but it, it is true that no matter how you slice the numbers, uh, Harry Enten uh, has gone on record about this. The, the, the majority of Republicans support a deal on DACA, so it it is very strange that in, in I, I think to a lot of people that the Democrats wouldn't have taken it just a little bit further, just to see if they could have gotten a little bit more out of the deal. You think? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I do. You know, I mean, I would have seen I would have liked to see it go on a a couple more days. But again, you know, um, one of the things that's that's interesting to to note about Republican support for DACA is that, yes, they may say so in a poll, but then their actions don't necessarily match their their words. You know, so while Republicans may support action on DACA, they still vote in the Mitch McConnell's and the Paul Ryan's and, you know, and and the Steve King's of the world. And so it's hard for me to kind of reconcile the two and say, okay, you know, I'm going to depend on all of this support, you know, in order to, you know, to shut down the government and again, create, you know, possible, you know, long-term injury to our economy, as well as long-term injury to our most vulnerable people. So could they have gone a couple more days? Absolutely. 
you know, but at the end of the day, I, I'm I'm not so sure that it was a bad thing for Schumer to reach a deal with them. I, I want to get your take, uh, both of your takes on something else, and that is the fact that the Democrats did manage to get a six-year extension for CHIP, and this is after Republicans had let it lapse for 114 days. Does mm-hmm. that mitigate things uh, as far as this deal goes for either of you, Chris? What, what do you think about that? No, it doesn't. I mean, of course, I'm happy that CHIP was um, extended and the six-year extension is great, but that should never have been put on the table in the first place. I mean, why are we pitting children's health against young people fearing deportation? I mean, why was that even a negotiation? It it doesn't help. Jimmy, what are your thoughts there? Um, I absolutely agree with Chris. I actually think that this was a trap that was laid by Mitch McConnell because when they decided to let the funding for CHIP um, elapse six months ago, you know, they decided that they wanted to use this as a bargaining chip to bring the Democrats to the table, you know. Um, so, and the whole messaging about pitting, you know, pitting children's health care against uh, against um, Dreamers is a, is a classic Republican talking point, mm. you know, um, that they used that they used against us. And so, you know, do what I do think, however, the getting the chip six year extension does is it takes it off the table for the for the next time we talk about this in February. Mm-hmm. So you, they don't have that talking point. They don't, you know, and that's not mm-hmm. something that we as Democrats have to contend against. And so yeah. there's a little bit of a of a silver lining to that particular cloud, but I absolutely agree with Chris there. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's actually kind of interesting that uh, the Republicans are almost as good as ex- at exposing the fault lines in the Democratic Party as as the Democrats are themselves. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and and as we know, there's been a, a very pronounced rift that became evident during the 2016 election. Um, and now there is a split on the left about how the Democrats handled the shutdown, as I mentioned. Um, the Democrats in Congress are kind of a coalition of progressives and I guess for want of a better word moderates people like Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp I don't I don't know how you uh, might view them politically but they're certainly not in the same camp as a Cory Booker or a Kirsten Gillibrand or an yep. Elizabeth Warren um, there's a lot of disagreement about party identity uh, and what the Democrats stand for how they should run and win elections um, Jamie how do you see the fight over DACA potentially impacting this Democratic split um, I, I unfortunately, I think it will um, it will exacerbate that rift. Honestly, um, I think there is, uh, you know, a, a bit of a, um, a a bit of a purity test, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, do you support this deal? You know, or does the supporting this deal mean that you're not adequately um, supportive of Dreamers and and of and of the DACA fight? Um, and I, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. And I think that we as Democrats would make a mistake in buying into that. Honestly, I think there is a difference between, you know, being a politician and trying to make a deal versus being, you know, be, being us, being out and being here activists and being out in local politics and things like that. And I think that we have ways of actually working together to support it. You know, I call it the um, vel- the iron hand and the velvet glove type of type of um, analogy mm. where the, the, the politicians can be the velvet glove making the making the deals and and trying to reach agreements. But if those agreements fall through or if the Republicans don't come through with it, the iron fist is basically all of us just raising holy hell, you know, if they do renege, if they do go back. And so I think that there's a way that we can actually work together with our with our Democratic leaders and our Democratic politicians to actually make those things work. But I think we have to we have to be a little bit more um, savvy about not not 
letting these things create the rifts that they do. I, I love the fact that those of us in the resistance get to be the iron fist in your analogy. It's, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> Me too. Um, so like as a follow-up to that, you know, Democrats have wanted a deal on immigration for, I think, over a decade or so publicly. Um, as a Democrat, Jamie, where do you place the importance of immigration as part of the Democrats' platform, especially going into a year like 2018 and a midterm election year? Um, I think it's right at the forefront. I think it's 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 core to us, um, you know, not only just for the values that we want to espouse as American people, but being, you know, the cynical politician that I am, mm. you know, it's it's also going to be incredibly important for our base and for our um and for for our votes for you know to get to get strong, you know, hopefully women, hopefully hopefully people of color politicians into office. Um, so I think it's going to be incredibly important for us. And, you know, and the fact that we can position ourselves as people who, you know, come from immigrants, but also support immigrants and their ability to actually build lives here and not only enrich themselves, but enrich our country and our culture. I think that's actually the right side of history. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, let's uh, bring you in uh, and talk about Indivisible in all of this. Uh, Ezra Levin pointed out in an interview that a lot of activists and Indivisible members have been out actively canvassing for Democratic candidates and mm-hmm. that what happened in the DACA fight might potentially dampen those activists' desire to keep doing that. Do, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree that it might do that. I don't want it to. Um, yeah, are you concerned about that? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm a pragmatist, and so I mean, I'm aligned with the Dems. I've been a Democrat my whole life, but I think, um, from an activist standpoint, we have to hold them accountable um, to to representing us and what we want. And so, you know, Indivisible is following the lead of the immigrants' rights groups. And all of those groups are absolutely going ballistic because of what happened on Monday. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that, you know, those of us Democrats, we're pretty uncomfortable with conflict. Um, and we want to make peace. Um, and we want to help everyone. But you know what? This is war. And we are fighting on behalf of the least among us. I mean, I take that whole uh, saying on the Statue, Statue of Liberty, you know, about taking in your, your tired, your hungry, uh, and and that's who we are as Americans. We can't, we can't stop fighting. We can't stop fighting that. And I was pretty upset um, on Monday. I mean, I was just absolutely flabbergasted, I think, because it happened so soon after we were all out on the streets mm. on, on the weekend. And, you know, I felt like, you know, Maria Cantwell, who is up for re-election this year, I felt like, well, geez, am I really going to be pounding the pavement for her, you know, uh, for her re-election? I'm not sure about that now. <laughs> well, so, yeah, let's let's shift over and talk about how this plays out here in the state. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, before we do, I should mention some news that broke today, which is that the state Senate just passed what is being called the Washington Dream Act, which will allow undocumented immigrants who were brought to the state as children to be eligible for certain forms of financial aid for college. Uh, so the state, or at least the state Senate, is stepping up. But, yeah, let's talk about our senators. I mean, as, as we know, there are some 70,000 dreamers living here 
in the state. Um, both Patty Murray and Rhea Cantwell, as you said, voted for the spending continuation without a deal for DACA. Uh, Patty Murray said in a statement, quote, I support this short-term agreement not because I blindly trust Republican leaders to deliver on their commitments, but because I believe this path offers the best chance to reach a comprehensive deal to protect families and communities in this Republican Congress. Maria Cantwell, for her part, said nothing. Um, she memorialized Rosie the Riveter, the woman who was uh, the model for Rosie the Riveter on Twitter, and, and nothing about the yep. uh, the shutdown. And she's the one yep. who was up for uh, re-election in 2018. Chris, you took issue with Maria Cantwell directly on Twitter. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I just said, how how could you do this? How could you sell out and cave so quickly? Um, and you might want to think about that as you're go- going into re-election because we we you know in the indivisible movement are largely out you know we're the ones that are putting the fire into the grassroots uh, effort out there and we're we're working with the Dems to get these folks elected and reelected and um, that was pretty hard to take and especially after she didn't you know say anything for yeah. over 24 hours it was it was um, it was pretty upsetting. Jamie, what was your feeling about Murray and Cantwell's vote? Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with the vote, honestly. Um, I don't, uh, I, I think it makes more sense for, you know, for senators who are planning on running in 2020 to, you know, to kind of show that they're against this. But, you know, I, I, I'm also a pragmatist. And again, you know, um, when you shut down the government, you know, I come from a military family, you know, my, my, my parents are, my parents are on VA healthcare, you know, they, they suffer people who need um, death benefits and, you know, economic assistance, they, they suffer, you know, so it's, it's real privilege for those of us who are able to, you know, to, to have, to have jobs and to not, not be dependent on the government for, for sustenance and for support, you know, to say that, you know, yeah, shut the government down for as long as it takes so that we can help the dreamers. But, you know, again, I feel like there's going to be diminishing returns if we had that closed for a longer, longer period of time. You know, what I do want to see is now that we've kind of gotten uh, McConnell into a corner, you know, is that, you know, we push since chip is off the table, we push for a clean bill on the dream act that we push for a clean vote on DACA. And um, that's what I expect to see Cantwell and Murray do moving forward. You know, you, you mentioned uh, McConnell uh, essentially being over a barrel and, Mm -hmm. It's funny because a couple of narrative threads have emerged about that, um, particularly after Schumer pulled the deal for Trump's wall off the table. Mm -hmm. Um, On one hand, uh, people are saying that Schumer may have been trying to show some strength here since both sides are going to have to start from scratch. But on the other hand, a lot of people thought that the Democrats were going to have the upper hand over McConnell in February because he made this promise. And if the government gets shut down again, it would be all on him. But now a lot of people are saying that McConnell might get to turn around and blame Schumer for pulling this deal off the table if negotiations break down again. You're the pragmat. You're both pragmatists, but Jamie, I'll ask you first. What do you make of that? Um, yeah. So honestly, I was I was aghast that he put the wall on the table in the first place. Mm. It's like, you know, we 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 as Democrats said absolutely not from day one, and why would you even go there? Um, but uh, the fact that he's pulled the wall deal off the table is, I think, is a good thing. <laughs> you know, I um, you know, do I do I think that hurts him with McConnell? Possibly. You know, but again, you know, the vast majority of people in this country are not for a wall. You know, do not think it's going to 
to to stop quote unquote illegal immigration, you know. And um, I'm not sure. I, I think Schumer was trying to you know to sweeten the deal for President Trump, you know. But I don't think he definitely. I don't think he needs to do that anymore, you know. So I don't think it's going to hurt them in the next round. Well, a lot of people are saying that he's playing chess, and 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 indeed, I mean, you know, Chuck Schumer is a very, very canny, seasoned politician. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of watching from the sidelines, wondering what he's going to do next. And I guess I'm I'm hopeful, sort of. But you know, a lot of pundits have said that a deal on DACA isn't really possible, given that the House is still overwhelmingly controlled by Republicans, many of whom are immigration. Uh, hardliners, I guess, is the right way uh, to say it. I, straight up racist is probably a, a better uh, a better way of saying it. But there it is. Um, Paul Ryan has said that he would only bring an immigration deal to the floor if the majority of GOP members would vote for it. Uh, and then Chuck Schumer was talking on Rachel Maddow the other night about how he felt that the quote, and I'm going to quote here, Awful, awful, awful pictures of the Dreamers being deported, I think, will really rally the nation in the House to cut a deal. Uh, The polls, as we have mentioned, I know, it's so cynical. The polls are really in favor of immigration reform and a DACA deal. And as you mentioned, Jamie, they're very much against a wall. Uh, This is an election year. So given everything that I've just said and basically all the conflicting, uh, I don't know, push-pull of all that, Chris, we'll start with you. Are you hopeful about a positive resolution for DREAMers here? I'm actually not. <laughs> I, I I go back and forth, but I think at this moment I'm not. Um, I see um, the priorities of the GAP, GOP are expressed in the legislation that they pass. And so far everything that they have rammed, for, rammed through uh, Congress has been – hateful and racist and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, hurts the less, the lesser among us. And, um, I, I just, and, you know, it's so tough to be in the minority like the Dems are. And, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not super hopeful actually. Doesn't mean I'm not going to fight, but I'm not hopeful. Well, so, so as we know, the, the, the next continuing resolution vote comes up on February 8th. Um, Jamie, I'll just ask you, what do you hope the Democrats do at that point? I mean, is February their do or die time? Will the base lose patience if they can't deliver? Are you are, – I guess I'll just sort of repeat what I asked Chris. Are you hopeful going into the next uh, continuing resolution vote in February? Um, I'm hopeful. Um, I, I do I do believe that there can be a solution, um, but I'm not uh, you know I, I'm not Pollyanna enough to feel like there will be a solution. Um, but I do think that the Dems will the Dems base will lose patience and faith if you know if this cave happens again in February. Yeah. Um, so honestly, I mean, you know, yeah, the cave makes sense because, you know, we were pitting 9 million children, you know, and their health care against, you know, against 800,000 dreamers. Okay, yeah, I can, you know, let's, let's not, you know, let's, let's not both, you know, shoot our guns, you know, because the madman is holding a gun. Um, let's, let's, let's be, let's be adults about this. However, we would have a clean bill in February. We would have the upper hand in February. And if we do not hold fast, I will be sorely disappointed. 
A lot of people will. I was going to yeah. say, yeah, well, I think a lot of people are with you. Uh, just, uh, I know this will be the last word on this, but just as a follow-up, uh, Jamie, um, Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice have said that they mm-hmm. are now targeting a number of states and municipalities with legal actions, subpoenas, and denial of federal funds if they fail to turn over documents showing that they are not withholding information about the immigration status of people in their custody. King County is among those municipalities, um, and you are a committee woman for King County. Can you shed mm-hmm. a little light on how King County is responding here? I know that Dow Constantine has spoken out about this. Um, absolutely. In fact, uh, Dow Constantine, uh, Pete Holmes, the Seattle City Attorney, um, you know Jenny Durkin, um, and and uh, Joe McDermott, who is the chair of our King County Council, um, they have all uh, spoken out against this. And honestly, it's it's really. It's unconstitutional. You know, it's it's an actual it's an absolute infringement on states rights and particularly on the sovereignty of King County as you know, in, in its ability to govern itself. Um, I, I really think it's an intimidation tactic by the DOJ, you know, under under Jeff Sessions. I don't think that there's really a whole lot of meat or any any teeth behind this. Um, you know, uh, honestly, there is no way for the federal government to compel a county or a city jurisdiction to um, to to uh, to cooperate, you know, with federal law enforcement. You know, if it's an unconstitutional um, if, if it's an, an unconstitutional ask, and I think the DOJ is way out of line on this. So I fully support what the King County Executive and what our team has been doing, and um, I think it's the right way to go. Okay, so let's shift over now and we will talk about the Women's March 2.0 as well as the Day of Action that followed on Sunday. Um, I do want to get both of your thoughts on this event as it happened right near the anniversary of the first march. And the first march, of course, was held after the inauguration of Trump. Um, Chris, I know you were at the march because we marched together. Uh, What are your thoughts uh, about this year's march? I I was very pleased to see so many people out there. There was a lot of what I call hand wringing beforehand, um, wondering if, you know, people are still engaged, they're still fighting, they're still out there. And overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. And it's yes all across the country. There was millions of people out there. And I was very happy to see it. I was even more happy to see the focus um, of, of the marches this year being on um, people of color and lifting up uh, women like it in the Seattle March, the, the, the focus was on missing and murdered indigenous women of Washington, which was so touching. Um, And so that's what we're about is, is lifting each other up, lifting everyone up. Um, And I was, I was very happy to be there on Saturday. Well, J- Jamie, I know that you were not able to attend this year's march, but I believe you attended the first one. Uh, what are your thoughts on this anniversary? Um, you know, I'm I'm thrilled to see that there's still so much fire and passion around these issues. Um, you know, I wasn't able to make it this year, but um, you know, I was happy to see a, a, a higher. Um, higher focus on intersectionality, you know, and I, and, and like what Chris mentioned about the missing, um, the missing indigenous women, I think that was a fantastic way for folks in Seattle to actually, you know, uh, proclaim and really step into that commitment to intersectionality. So yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way that the Women's March is growing and that we all are, are beginning to really see each other as allies and accomplices, you know, in equality and, you know, um, and and inclusion, you know, throughout the country. So I'm I'm happy to see how things are going to continue to progress. 
You know, Chris, you mentioned millions of people uh, coming out, and uh, we can't seem to get any numbers on the Seattle turnout beyond a very nebulous tens of thousands. But uh, in Los Angeles, they have confirmed over 500,000 people, over 200,000 in New York, 300,000 in Chicago. Uh, Most estimates put it at about a little over 2 million people nationwide. And yet this year's marches didn't get nearly the media coverage that they got last year. Uh, The Sunday shows the day after barely mentioned it. Um, Any any theories as to why that might be, Chris? Please don't let it be about misogyny. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I hope it's not that we're underestimated. Um, I hope we're not just kind of turning into noise um, like some of the other movements. Um, and um, we shouldn't be discounted. That's all I get to say. Like we're organizing. We're working. Um, we're moving into working on electoral work. Um, we're not going away. We and you know in the activist committee community we don't have some of the bureaucracy of the party and we can move extremely fast so um i ultimately i think it's about uh, misogyny yeah um, shamefully you know uh there was something that uh pollster matt mcdermott of whitman insight strategy said in a tweet he said the resistance and that was with a capital r uh, is the most underestimated unappreciated and underreported political movement in modern american history but i'm wondering could this be our secret weapon? I mean, we're kind of sneaking up on people, and, and all of a sudden, like you say, we're pretty nimble. Jamie, what are, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I think it's a good thing. You know, if I may uh, go back to my hip-hop roots a little bit, you know, to, qual- to quote the Nortoyas B.I.G., you know, real gangsters move in silence and violence, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, um, I, I, I'm okay with the media not paying attention to what we do because, you know, that, that allows us to, you know, to get things done a little bit more effectively and efficiently. Um, so, uh, and honestly, I, I, I hesitate and I think we, we Democrats, we fall into this a lot, you know, um, that thinking media coverage is the measure by, of our effectiveness as activists and as politicians and, and, and you know, people who are who are moving towards a certain goal. I actually don't think it is. I think media is like, you know, squirrel, you know. Um, <laughs> shiny. They're, they're going, yeah, exactly. The the shiniest thing that's that's dripping with blood, that's what they're going to chase after. And mm-hmm. I think you know, what stepped on the women's march was the shutdown and the deal and and mm-hmm. and President Trump's erratic behavior. So, um, you know, I don't think that it diminishes the women's march at all. I don't think it diminishes the movement. Um, mm-hmm. But we but, you know, we need to make sure that the marching is not all we do. We need to make sure that uh, marching is basically just the visual part, you know, of the iceberg that is our activism, our planning, our, you know, grooming candidates, our policy, um, our, our policy advancements, our legislative action, that sort of thing. Emily's List, um, I heard recently that Emily, Emily's List tracks the number of women candidates. And in previous years, there was like 900 and some. Mm-hmm. And this year, there's over 25,000. So I think you're right. It's not the media. It's it's that is one of our measures of success. You're right. Yes. Well, so since, and as I mentioned this, the day of action took place after the marches, we will end on the uh, issue of motivation. Um, the uh, The first march was the largest in American 
American history, uh, some 5 million people marching nationwide, uh, but only a small percentage of people actually stayed active after that march. Uh, it is a very hard number to quantify, but th- mm-hmm. the estimates are between 1% and 5% of people who marched actually stayed active in any substantial way. Uh, and so, as I say, the day of action that followed the Women's March on Sunday uh, was aimed at getting people active. Um, you're both politically active. Uh, what will each of you be focusing on to keep people motivated in 2018? Chris, let's start with you. We still have a lot to do. Um, and in in my particular focus, we're working on uh, flipping our congressional district from red to blue. Um, and, and that's the that's eighth. Where I, right. Yes. And that's where I was on Sunday was at a flip the eighth event sponsored by the Democrats. And um, we're strong allies with them. And, you know, it was a rainy, horrible, windy Sunday in January. And there was probably 100 people ready to go knock on doors. Um, so that's what we're doing. We, we have hope. Um, we have, we, we're pushing till November. Well, Jamie, you get the last word this week. What will you be focusing on to try to keep people motivated in 2018? Um, so for me, it's a, it's about you know driving candidate development. Um, I myself, I was a candidate for Renton City Council this past um, cycle. Didn't quite make it, but got 43% of the vote. Um, I am uh, I am in the Emerge Washington inaugural uh, 2018. Patty Are Murray you class. really? Well, we want, we're actually are going to want to follow up with you on that to see how that goes because oh, uh, we interviewed Karen Besserman on this show, yes. and uh, I would very much love to talk with you about the process of that. So I'm hoping that you'll come back as as it goes through and and kind of give us an update and and and, and a report. I would love to. Excellent. Yeah, I mean. So between those two, you know, working in my community to educate people on um, on on the elections coming up and how these things impact us, you know, and making sure that we're uh, making sure that we're getting out the vote. This is it's a, it's a big thing that's very dear, near and dear to my heart. Mm. My sorority, Zeta Phi Beta sorority, we have a get engaged campaign where we are actively working to make sure that people are getting um, are getting registered early and often. So we'll be we'll be moving forward on that as well. Excellent. Well, I'm feeling a lot more hopeful after talking with both of you. This has been fantastic. (laughs) All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week in review for the week of January 25th, 2018. As always, for more information about the show, head over to indivisiblepodcast.org and kindly subscribe while you are there. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and our Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you Thank you, as always, for joining us, Chris Petzold. Thank you. And thank you for joining us, Jamie Smith. Thank you so much. And thanks, as always, to everybody out there for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.